Please be seated and please open your Bibles to the book of Zechariah, chapter 13. If you're not sure where Zechariah is, two books to the left of Matthew. So probably about three or four pages to the left of Matthew, you'll find Zechariah chapter 13. <clears throat> We've been studying through the book of Zechariah. This is now, I think, the 25th or the 26th message in our series going through this prophetic book. And we are nearing the end. We are now in the final section, the final subsection of the final section of Zechariah. Zechariah, as you remember, is a prophetic book written to the returned remnant from the Babylonian captivity. He's writing to a beleaguered people, once a mighty nation, now a small ragtag group of people as a side note in history. And he's writing to them to encourage them. And, and the book ends in a climactic note. This final word, the burden of the word of the Lord, which starts in 12.1 and goes through chapter 14, as we've seen in the last two weeks, speaks again and again and again of on that day. If you look at chapter 12, verse 3, on that day. Chapter 12, verse 4, on that day. 6, on that day. 8 on that day, 9 on that day, 11 on 16 times in the next three chapters on that day occurs. And we've said, okay, what day is that? Well, it's the day that according to chapter 14, 2, the nations gather around Jerusalem in what is commonly known as the Battle of Armageddon, the Valley of Megiddo. Verse 4 of chapter 14, on that day... His feet, the Lord's feet, will stand on the Mount of Olives that lie before Jerusalem on the east. This is the day the Lord Jesus returns to earth to fight for His people. Verse 8, On that day, living waters shall flow out of Jerusalem, half of them to the east sea, and half of them to the western sea, and it shall continue in summer as in winter. And then verse 9, The Lord will be king over all the earth on that day. The Lord will be one, and His name one. So the events of this final burden of the Word of the Lord focus around that day. The day when the nations gather around Jerusalem. The day when the Lord Jesus returns to fight for His people. The day when the kingdom is set up. When God rules on earth from sea to sea in righteousness. It's an exciting time. And so what Israel is hearing is despite their small and beleaguered state at the time of Zechariah, they will, they will be delivered. They will be restored. They will be redeemed. And so in the first nine verses of chapter 12, we saw the Lord deliver Israel physically from their enemies, confounding their enemies, pouring out covenant curses on their enemies, keeping covenant promises to Israel, emboldening and enabling them to fight. And then last week, we saw something even more significant more important, more wondrous, not only will the Lord save them physically, the Lord will save them spiritually. We looked at 12.10. On that day I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn on that day. The morning in, Me in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning at Hadad Ramon in the plains of Megiddo. What we saw last week is that God sovereignly would pour out His Spirit on Israel. 
He'd pour His Spirit out on them so that they would look and looking to their Messiah in faith, they would understand what they had done. They would understand who He was. And in understanding who He was and in understanding what they had done, they would be broken in repentance. Our next section, 13.1 through 13.6, really is the culmination of this story. It's really the third part of Israel's salvation. Really, 12.1 through 13.6 is all one story. What we're going to see today is the results, the effect of Israel's salvation. And what we're going to learn from that as we study it is also the fruit and the effects of our salvation. We saw last week that the Lord God saves those who look to His crucified Son in faith and in repentance over their sin. We saw that the Lord God will fight for, will deliver, will be faithful to the one who trusts in His crucified Son. Today, we're going to see what the results of that trust is. And our text is divided up neatly into three on that days in which our bullet points are circled around. Let's read 13.1-6 to and we'll see those divisions. Zechariah 13.1-6 On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols in the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. And if anyone again prophesies, his mother and father who bore him will say to him, you shall not live. You speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he will say, I am no prophet. I am a worker of the soil. For a man sold me in my youth. And if anyone asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. Seeing the results of Israel's repentance and faith, the consequence What happens when a person turns to the Messiah in faith? What happens when a person repents of their sin? Three things in this text. The first, we see they are totally cleansed from their sin. They are totally cleansed from their sin. This is good news. This is good news. Israel is in a hopeless condition. The nations of the world gathered about them. And we saw last week that in chapter 14, zooming into this event even more, that before the tides turn, they will appear to have lost Look at 14.2, I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. The city shall be taken, the houses plundered, the women raped, and half the city shall go into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off. And I suggested that Israel's turning to the Lord, this pouring out of the Spirit, occurred at that crucial point. They're in dire straits, and yet they don't have to do a single thing. They look in faith. They they grieve over their sin. No works, no action. Simply a change of heart and mind and faith. And then everything changes for them. And that same offer of salvation is, is available for us today. We see point A, that God always, always responds to repentance and faith with forgiveness and cleansing. This isn't just true for Israel. This is true for you and for me. Without having to do anything. Simply looking in faith. Simply grieving one's sins, simply trusting in the crucified Messiah always, always, always results in God's forgiveness. This this is good news. They were in a hopeless situation. There was nothing they could do. 
except look to the crucified Messiah. In Psalm 51, which we sang earlier today, David writes that the sacrifices of God were broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. If you're here today and you want to know how you can have peace with God, you want to know how you can have the forgiveness of your sins, all, all God is calling on you to do is to look to His crucified Son, to trust in Jesus Christ, to, 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 to repent of your sins and turn and trust Him. Israel here recognizes that their sin is what crucified the Son of God, that they were the ones who pierced Him through their sins. They grieve that, and now they turn and look in faith, and God pours out a pardon. He pours out forgiveness lavishly, pictured as a river flowing out of Jerusalem. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. What, what does God do in response to our faith? He forgives sin. He cleanses. He purifies. The New Testament, 1 John 1.9 says, or 7-9, through 9, if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the good news of the gospel. You don't have to do anything. We're going to see the results of their salvation. Israel's going to change and do a whole lot. It's simply a matter of looking in faith, looking in brokenness at Christ, at the one they pierced, and realizing that, that our sin has made us guilty. I mean, that's, that's really the concept here. Sin makes one unclean. The picture of cleansing is a common picture. In Psalm 51 and earlier in verse 2, David writes, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And each one of us has a, has a heart that goes after evil things. From the deepest inside of us, we crave and desire that which God forbids. And we run after other gods, we run after other idols, and we pollute ourselves. And what we need is the Lord God to change our heart. We need the Lord God to cleanse us, and He offers it here freely. Freely. It's seen in this picture of a river flowing from the very throne of God. Now the river, I do believe, is a literal river. There's just too many references to this river in the Scripture for it not to be a literal river. But the importance of the river is its symbolic importance. It's not that this is magic water flowing out of Jerusalem. And if unrepentant, unbelieving pagans could somehow dip themselves in this water, they'd be cleansed. But rather, the Lord God provides this river. It's a vivid picture of His ongoing offer and His ongoing cleansing from sin poured out. We see it again if you look over in chapter 14, verse 8. That river is there again. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. And the book of Ezekiel talks about this same river, talking about the millennial temple in Ezekiel chapter 47. Ezekiel writes, Then he brought me to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple towards the east. The temple faced east. And the water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. And then he brought me out by the way of the north gate, and he led me around the outside of the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water is trickling out the south side. The prophet Joel speaks of it this way. And in that day, the mountains shall drip, drip, drip. 
And in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. The book of Revelation closes in chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river, the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb throughout the middle of the streets of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in its month. The leaves are for the healing of the nations. So there is, I do believe, a literal river demonstrating symbolically the ongoing life-giving forgiveness that the Lord God offers. I think this is similar to what Jesus spoke of. If you think of John 7, borrowing this imagery, the last day of the Feast of Booths, the great day, this is John 7, 37. Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So God has provided an abundant salvation. I think the picture here is a river doesn't easily dry up. If you're wondering, does God's forgiveness extend to me? Is there enough forgiveness? This is a deep and wide river, and it's continually flowing. Fresh water is just pouring right out of the very throne of God. I and mean, the picture is it's in the temple, and in the temple is the mercy seat, which the Lord Jesus will occupy. And from below the mercy seat in the temple, going out through Jerusalem, splitting to the east and to the west, is this river. It's an ever-present symbol and picture of God's ongoing, never exhausted, always fresh, always sufficient grace and forgiveness for those who trust in His Son. It's a wonderful picture. It's a wonderful picture. When I first became a believer, I remember one of learning a worship song. Maybe some of you have heard it, Let the River Flow. And the only problem with Let the River Flow is it didn't have a whole lot of content. And I was always wondering, what is this river? And I think it said it like, you know, 37 times, you know, let the river flow, let the river flow, let the river flow. I think this is that, there's a light bulb moment in Iowa when I was studying. It's like, this is the river! Okay. And so this is a great hope for us. And just picture of God's present grace. What does he do? What, how does he respond to those who look to his son in faith? He lavishly, inexhaustively, pours out his forgiveness and cleansing. And not only just the initial cleansing that removes our guilt, but an ongoing cleansing of our relationship. As Jesus talks about the one who's had the bath doesn't need another bath, he just needs his feet washed. Not only does God respond by forgiving the penalty of our sins when we look to his son in faith, but every day he, he continues to cleanse and restore and sanctify us. So how does God respond? What is the result of Israel's repentance and faith? The first thing we see in verse 1, they are totally cleansed from their sin. Now that is what the Lord God does for them. Now let's read on to see the second aspect. The second on that day, verse 2 through 3. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. And if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say to him, you shall not live. For you speak lies in the name of the Lord, and his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. So the first thing we saw, that they are totally cleansed from their sin. But second, we see they radically turn from their sin. Remember I said before, in order to be saved, they have to look in repentance and faith. They have to look in faith to the Messiah, grieving for their sin. They don't have to do anything. The purification, the change, the fruit, the outworking of that comes later. 
They are first forgiven and cleansed, and then the outworking of that repentance, the outworking of that faith is seen as they turn radically from their sin. We see that their besetting sins are cut off and removed. Now, before Israel was taken into captivity, before Israel went to Babylon, the primary besetting sins are what's listed here. Idolatry, false prophecy, and this general spirit of uncleanness. Now, turning your Bibles, let's look at an example of this idolatry. I mean, and from Israel's real foundation, idolatry had been a problem for them. Turning your Bibles to Exodus 32. And keep your finger there, because we're going to come back here a little later. So if you want to keep a little note, if your Bible has a little ribbon, you can put it there. But really, idolatry has beset Israel from their first day. If you think, when did Israel become a nation? They became a nation when they left Egypt and came to Mount Sinai and entered into a covenant with God. And while Moses is up on the mountain, while Moses is receiving the law and the covenant from God, what do they do? They worship other gods. From day one, idolatry has been a problem for the people of God. Let's read the account here in the first six verses of Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So apparently 30 days was too long for them to wait. They'd seen the, the miracle, the miraculous. Wow. Okay. They had seen the miraculous power of God, the parting of the Red Sea. They had seen God work mightily defending them, the, the pillar of fire that went before them. And yet when Moses goes up on this mountain that is quaking and shaking after 30 days, they're tired of waiting. We don't know what's happened to Moses. Maybe he's never coming back. Make us some gods to go before us. So Aaron said to them, take off your rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives and sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drank and rose up to play. Now we listen to that account and we think, those fools, how how could you see God's mighty working? How could you see God's mighty acts of deliverance? And so quickly turn astray. But I think the the same is true for all of us. There are all types of idols. There are overt idols like this, golden calves that can be seen and touched, but Ezekiel 14 speaks about those who bring their idols into their hearts. James 4 talks about friendship with the world is idolatry. I think God's people have always struggled with loving, worshiping, valuing, serving other gods. And here, as a result of their repentance and faith, as a result of their salvation, they turn radically from their sin. The Lord God says, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. Now, the second thing that Israel had a problem with was false prophecy. So the first problem is forsaking God for other gods. The second problem is to stay with God, but to twist his words or to create words so that he says what you want him to say. This is a problem. We won't won't go there, but in, in 2 Kings, in 1 Kings 22, 
um, Ahab and Jehoshaphat are forming an alliance to, to go fight a war, and they want to seek God and seek His counsel. And Ahab has 400 prophets of the Lord, quote-unquote, who all tell him, oh, go up, go up, you'll succeed. But they're all prophesying falsely. It's, it's really easy if you know what people want to hear to, to try to find some way to make God say it. And there's no shortage in church history of people trying to do that. People trying to say, well, the Bible really says what you want to do is okay. There's no shortage of, of looking for that. This also will be cut off when people are genuinely converted, when people are, are transformed, when God's Spirit falls upon them. They'll be changed. One of the, one of the marks of Jesus' sheep, according to John 10, is they hear His voice. And here, idolatry is cut off. False prophecy is cut off. And third, a spirit of uncleanness is removed. Now this is in direct contrast with chapter 12, verse 10. What does God pour out upon them? He pours out upon the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. What does God pouring out His Spirit on His people remove? It removes the unclean spirit. The spirit of uncleanness. That's what it's getting at here is, is an evil spirit. In the New Testament, in Luke 4.33, picking up on this type of phrase, in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And Jesus encounters people of unclean spirits. What's an unclean spirit? It's a demon. What stands behind all false religion, according to the Old Testament and the New uniformly? Demons. James, the wisdom of this world, what is it? It's natural, unspiritual, demonic. When God's Spirit pours upon God's people, that old wisdom, that old spirit, that old way of operating is gone. And this is important because what we see is this radical transformation. We're going to see it demonstrated in a radical act of loyalty to the Lord in a moment. But I just want to emphasize that when Israel turns to the Lord in repentance and faith, when God pours out His Spirit, when people are cleansed, things change. That's always the message of the Gospel, that things change. I'll steal an illustration from another preacher, but I want you to imagine that this morning, after, after the final song was sung, rather than me walking up here, there was just nobody and nothing, and there was a long, awkward pause. And then after five or six minutes, I sort of walked up the front steps, and I came in, and I came up looking just as I do now, and I said, guys, I am so sorry that I'm late. <laughs> so sorry that I'm late. On my way to church this morning, my, my Toyota Corolla got in a head-on collision with a Mack truck. And it really set me back a bit. And uh, I apologize. I'm so sorry. But here I am now. Let's begin. Now remember, I'm showing up looking just as I do now. Now what would be the problem with that explanation for why, why I'm late? Would anyone buy that explanation? Would you believe, if I looked as I do now, that my little Toyota Corolla got in a head-on collision with a Mack truck? Anyone? Because there's no way, there is no way on earth you can, you can come face to face with a Mack truck and be unaltered, be unchanged. Likewise, there is no way the Spirit of the living God can fall upon somebody and indwell that person and they still look and act the same. Israel's rampant problems, their besetting sins, their idolatry, their false prophecy, the spirit of uncleanness is removed. It is. They're changed. If people come to know the Lord, if our salvation is genuine, we become changed. The Lord sanctifies us. 
Um, there, there is no genuine salvation without ongoing transformation. And that's seen starkly and clearly here. Look, look at the example of just how deep this change goes into verse 3. If anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say to him, you shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him will pierce him through when he prophesies. First, their besetting sins are cut off and removed. Next, we see their loyalty and allegiance is unalterably fixed on the Lord. Now, this is shocking stuff. I've got three children, one on the way. Many of you have children. And what's seen here is a picture of such loyalty and devotion to God that all other allegiances are are nothing next to it. This is the point. The, The blank here is transcending all earthly relationships. There's nothing more natural than for a parent to lay down their life for their child, for a parent to preserve the life of the child. And yet here, as Israel is converted, as God's Spirit is poured out upon them, as they're bearing out the fruit of repentance, their loyalty now lies ultimately and unalterably fixed on the Lord. This is shocking, right? I mean, it's almost the type of thing in the Bible we want to kind of pretend isn't there. I do want to make a couple caveats. Israel was a theocracy. A theocracy is a form of government where, where the religion and the civil rule are combined. So David, as a king of Israel, say, is a theocratic king. He's a religious leader and he's a political leader. And so in a theocracy, there, there is provision for, and in the law provides for, what do you do with those who call you after false gods? You put them to death. We, as the church, are not part of a theocracy. And so let's be really clear up front that for us, the application of this principle of loyalty will never involve doing violence to another person, will never involve um, trying to harm another person because they are part of another religion. But the principle of loyalty is one that, that is from the beginning and to the end of Scripture. Again, we sang the song for Elizabeth Elliot was heard. We didn't sing it, sorry, it's a special music about picking up our cross. Jesus was clear about the the level of dedication. And I want to just follow a little thread. Go back to Exodus 32, where we just were at a few minutes ago. (sighs) Salvation is a free gift, but the the faith that Christ is calling for, the the faith that God is looking for, is a very radical faith. Um, It it isn't half-hearted. It's devoted and, and we, can, we can struggle with this. But I want you to look at the story we're going to see. Of You ever wonder, why did the tribe of Levi become the priests? Why were the Levites the ones who became the priests? We're going to see as we keep reading the story of the golden calf, why. why the, how the tribe of Levi earned their priesthood. And it was through a demonstration of their ultimate loyalty to God. God is calling for loyalty. I want you to read this. We'll pick it up. We, we saw the, the, the worship of the golden calf in the first six verses of chapter 32. Let's pick it up in verse 25. When Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. He's asking, Whose allegiance ultimately and above all else, is for the Lord. Who responds? 
the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. So here's what Moses says. All of Israel's worshiping this golden calf, okay? And you can only do this if you're a theocratic leader. This is no, no earthly person has this type of authority. Only because Moses is speaking for God can he say this. Only because Israel has just entered into a national covenant with God can this type of penalty be applied. And again, there, there's no place for violence against, against false religion today in the world as we are not a theocratic people. But when Moses tells the Levites, this is put on your sword and I want you to walk from one side of the camp to the other and I want you to strike down whoever you come across. And if it's your brother, so be it. If it's your mother, so be it. If it's your father, so be it. Who's for the Lord? Then look at verse 39. Moses said, today, you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one of you, at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon them to this day. The reason the tribe of Levi is singled out for the priesthood, the reason why this tribe of Levi's gets no land because their inheritance is the Lord is because at this crucial moment when God's people had turned from him, when idolatry is rampant, their allegiance was first and foremost to the Lord above all else. And the Lord honors them for that. Turn a little bit over to Deuteronomy chapter 33. As Moses is, is getting ready to move on and Deuteronomy is kind of his closing addresses, he blesses each of the tribes of Israel in a song Chapter 3 is Moses' final blessing on Israel. And I want you to see what he says when he gets to the tribe of Levi. I want you to understand the radical loyalty that God is looking for from all of us. The expression of that loyalty is different today. The standard of loyalty is unaltered. Verse 8, And of Levi he said, Give to Levi your thumen and your ermine, which are the priestly garments, to your godly one, whom you tested at Massah, with whom you quarreled at the waters of Meribah, who said of his father and mother, I regard them not. He disowned his brothers and ignored his children, for they observed your word and kept your covenant. Again, they are praised because when they are forced to choose between loyalty to their relatives, loyalty to their kinsmen, and loyalty to God, the tribe of Levi chose loyalty to God, and they were honored for it. Now, in case you're tempted to think, okay, this is some heavy Old Testament stuff, bear that in mind and now turn to Matthew 10. Like I said, the expression of this loyalty changes. In a context of a theocratic nation and government, it may look one way. But I want you to look at what the words of our Lord Jesus says, and he's speaking to Jews, he's speaking to people who know the law. And based on that backdrop and that context, I want you to read again words you've probably read many times, but you probably thought were just hyperbole, just exaggeration, just, we couldn't really mean that. Matthew 10, 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. 
Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. For whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You're getting this unchanged standard of loyalty that goes from Exodus all the way through the teachings of Jesus. What Jesus is calling for, what God is calling for, and what the new birth and what genuine faith produces is a loyalty to God that trumps our loyalty to any other person or relative. Now, it's not that we're actually hating our mothers and fathers, but I'm sure there are those of us who, being faithful to Scripture, our actions have been interpreted as hateful. We've got a whole world that is willing now to call us hateful and bigoted for being faithful to Scripture. It, our actions will be interpreted that way. And for, for many people I know, choices have had to be made. Faithfulness to God or doing what my husband or wife wants. Faithfulness to God or doing what my child wants. And Jesus is clear faith he's looking for, the one who can come after him, is the one who has placed their loyalty and allegiance to God above all else. It's a scary thing. This is one of the reasons why salvation is a work of God. That when his spirit comes upon us, when we look in faith and repentance, when our sins are cleansed, this type of loyalty, this type of commitment to the Lord is produced. And it's not as though the Lord has not been faithful to us. In Romans 8, Paul says, He who did not spare his own son for us, but gave him up for us, how will he not freely give us all things? God was willing to sacrifice his son for us. He calls for and from us a loyalty that is above all other loyalties. It's, it's frightening. I mean, I, I don't pretend this is an easy passage to read. But this is the extent of Israel's repentance. Formerly, they're idolatrous. Now, Parents are willing, and this is in keeping. You can read the passage that prescribes it in Deuteronomy 13, according to the law. They will not tolerate the sin. What we see in point two, first, first in point one, it transcends all earthly relationships. Point two, and there's a contrast now with what we saw in back in chapter 12. We're back in Zechariah now. Remember in Zechariah 12:10, they look on him whom they have pierced. The contrast here is now they pierce God's enemies, not his Messiah. Formerly, in their unfaithfulness, formerly in their love of their sin, formerly in their, in their pursuit of idols, they were willing to pierce through the Son of God because he got in the way of pursuing their idols and their pleasures. Now, in contrast, and in obedience to the law, the ones who are God's enemies are pierced. That's how they demonstrate their repentance. They demonstrate their change of mind. They demonstrate their change of heart. He heavy stuff, hard stuff, but it's unmistakable. Is there any question that these people have repented? Is there any question these people have, have switched their allegiance from one team to another? It's seen in radical and stark examples. So the first result of, of Israel's repentance and faith, they're totally cleansed from their sin. That's what God does. And the second point, we see they turn from their sin. That's what they're doing. Then in point three, they guard themselves from their sin. They guard themselves from their sin. And here, the text focuses now on this third on that day at those who are unrepentant, those who in their midst 
going into the kingdom are not believers? What, what, what of them? What will they do? It's kind of bizarre upon first reading. Verse 4. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he will say, I'm no prophet. I'm a worker of the soil. For man sold me in my youth. And if one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. Now, the first thing to make out here is we're continuing to look at false prophets. This is not righteous prophets we're looking at. This goes back to verse 2 of this section. And I will remove from the land the prophets. And the implication here is clearly the false prophets. God's not removing righteous prophets. So in verse 4, on that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision. We're still talking about false prophets. And we see that for a couple of reasons. One, they're, they're putting on these garments of prophets, and they've got ritual marks from cutting themselves. Um, and the Levitical law forbids cutting yourselves for the dead. When, when Elijah had that, that showdown with the prophets of Baal, what were they doing as they were calling upon Baal to, to light their fire? They were cutting themselves and dancing around and getting into a frenzy. The first thing we see here is that when God's people have repented, when God's people have come to faith in the messianic kingdom, the wicked will not boast but be ashamed. See, formerly the prophets could walk in public boldly. They, they could publicly call others after other gods. Without shame, the prophets would put on their garb, these false prophets, they put on their, their the prophetic cloaks, and they'd go about now... They're hiding. And, then, and you ask yourself, okay, why are they hiding? Well, the, the implication is clear because Israel has not only turned from its own sin, but it is zealous to guard itself from those rising up who would turn them away from God. See, in point two, they're turning from their sin. In point three, they are guarding themselves from sin. So that if anyone were to rise up, if anyone were to turn them and subvert them from the living God, they're, they're checking into it. And so... Here's this person being sort of interrogated, questioned. And he says, no, 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 I'm not a prophet. I'm a worker of the soil. I've always been a worker of the soil. I was bought at a young age. I've always been a farmer. I'm not a false prophet. This is good news. We, We live in a day where evil, wickedness openly walks. The law of our land just declared that which is wrong, right. We live in a day where evil is bold, walks publicly. There's coming a day in the kingdom when that will be changed, when it will have to go underground. The wicked will no longer boast, but be ashamed. Now that, that same problem can happen in the church. In, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul rebukes the Corinthians. they got a guy who's having an ongoing illicit affair with his stepmother. In 1 Corinthians 5, 1-2, Paul writes, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. They're proud of themselves because they're so tolerant. Non-judgmental Corinthian church. And so here's this guy having an ongoing affair with his, with his mother-in-law or stepmother. And they're just proud of themselves. Look at how tolerant and accepting we are. We don't judge anyone here. It is possible even in the church for, for evil and wickedness to be bold. And Paul tells them rather than boast, they ought to be ashamed. When, when God's people get their faith seriously, when they are genuinely converted, they don't, they don't tolerate ongoing sin in their midst. The modern equivalent for this would be the ongoing commands of Matthew 18 and church discipline. 
community, we see, will be jealous for its own purity and faithfulness to the Lord. And a little later in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says this to them, Your boasting is not good, speaking still about this man. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Then he goes on to tell them, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people, not at all meeting the sexually immoral of the world. See, we're not to judge the world, but I'm writing you now not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. He's guilty of sexual immorality or greed. Where's an idolater? We don't, we don't put people to death. We don't do violence to them, but we may need to break associations, break relationships. When people who call themselves Christians are publicly, blatantly, and willfully giving themselves to sin and unrepentance. Paul says, I'm now writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother. If he's guilty of sexual morality or greed or is an idolater, a reveler, a drunkard, a swindler, not even to eat with such a one, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? It's not those inside the church you are to judge. God judges the outsider, purge the evil person from among you. So again, the application of this principle of loyalty, this principle of guarding, is different in millennial kingdom Israel and for the church today, but the principles are the same. The community is guarding itself from sin. The community is inspecting. People are asking, hey, are you a false prophet? What's going on with those cuts on your back? And, and, and the wicked, rather than being public and boastful and vaunting themselves publicly, are hiding and denying, and, no, 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 no I, ain't, I ain't no false prophet. We can look forward, we can look forward to a day when, when wickedness is not... Um, flaunting itself. The, uh, the returned Christ will rule the nations according to Psalm 2 with a rod of iron. And justice will be done on the earth. So what, so what do we get from this passage? A couple things. One, hope. No matter how history goes, it will end up here. Whatever turns and dips it takes, this is going to be the culmination of history on earth. The culmination of history in chapter 14 where we're getting to, the Lord will be king over the earth. So take heart. If you're discouraged at what's been going on in our courts, if you're discouraged at what's going on in the world, take heart. There's coming a day when the Lord will be king over all the earth, when the Lord will be one in his name one. There'll be coming a day where wickedness has to go underground if it's to exist at all. There's coming a day the land will be purified from idols and idolatry. What else do we get from this? Well, we see that the offer of forgiveness is always out to those who will believe, always out to those who will turn to the Messiah. The pictures of that ongoing river indicate it's, it's continual. We see that God will always respond to our repentance and faith with forgiveness. What else do we see? We also see that when people are genuinely converted, when people genuinely receive God's Spirit, when their hearts are changed, things change in their lives. And what were formerly their besetting sins are cast off. Their allegiances shift. And that's unchanged for us as well. Jesus calls us to that same level of commitment, that same level of fidelity. Picking up our cross, denying ourselves, loving Him and His glory above all else. And we see that Israel will be guarding itself, seeking out the leaven that leavens the lope, just as the church is to purify itself continually as well. 
So we've seen in three parts God defend Israel and save them physically. God save them spiritually. And now we've seen the results, the consequences of Israel's repentance and faith. Next week, we'll take a look back prophetically to the crucified and struck down shepherd. But for now, let us just rejoice in our salvation. Let us pray that God would unite our hearts so that we could exercise this type of faithfulness to Him who has shown so much faithfulness to us. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we are blessed that as many of us as have turned to your Son, as many of us who have placed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have cleansed us of our sin and you continue to wash us with mercies and graces that never end like a river flowing. And Lord God, we we confess our desire is to please you. Our desire is to turn from our sin. But Lord, we know that we need your spirit to do that. We know that our old man still kicks and is in his death throes. And so Lord, we pray that you would continue to conform us to the image of your son, that you would grant us a profound, real and true repentance, bearing itself in the fruit of a changed life that not only that you would forgive us, but that you would change us and transform us. And Lord, we pray that you would grant us that commitment, that love, that loyal fidelity to you that surpasses all other commitments, that surpasses all other values, that when the world will call us to choose between fitting in our culture and being faithful to you, and our families would call us, pleasing them or pleasing you, that we would choose you again and again and again. You have been faithful to us. You have never forsaken us. You have never let us down. Would that we would be faithful to you. And Lord God, we just pray that you would receive the glory and we receive the joy and the blessing in all this. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and give you peace. You are dismissed.